Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, everybody. John Donvan here, host of Intelligence Squared US, the debate series, America's premier debate series, as we like to say. This podcast, however, not strictly speaking, a debate episode. It's more of what I now think we can call an Intelligence Squared US Thanksgiving tradition which I'm going to get to in just a minute. First, though, I want to say what a great year we've had at Intelligence Squared, our audience growing all the time. I'm betting a lot of you listening only came on board this year, so thank you for that. And some really great debates we've had. I checked in with our team to get some of their recommendations for favorites, recommendations for you to check out, just from year 2018. So here's a short list to start with. We returned to the subject of God and mixed it in with the subject of consciousness and human evolution, along with a good strong dose of Deepak Chopra as one of our debaters. That one was called The More We Evolve, The Less We Need God, and it's still getting a lot of downloads. So is the debate that we built around Valentine's Day. The resolution was Swipe Left, Dating Apps Have Killed Romance. There was some real scientific insight in that one, and also some very sweet moments. Check out the closing argument put up by the Vice President for Engineering at OKCupid. It's got a big surprise in it, and it's really lovely. And then a quite recent debate, one we staged just before the midterms. The resolution was progressive populism will save the Democratic Party. Now that you know how the midterms turned out, you can bring some added insight to what our debaters brought to the stage that night. And one more, Bitcoin is more than a bubble and is here to stay. We did that one in the spring. You know what kind of year it's been for Bitcoin. Well, if you don't, it has not been a great year for Bitcoin. But if you check in on this one, it helps to answer the question, what is Bitcoin anyway? So if you're confused, this debate will help you out on that. So all in all, some very good arguing happened on our stage. And I always say, arguing is how you discover that you might be wrong. Good arguing is when it's fact-based and supported by logic, and when it's civil enough so that if you do discover that some of what you think might be wrong, you can be persuaded to change your mind publicly. And it's hard to do that when you're being insulted and when there's mud in the air, and I guess we're living through an era of mud in the air, and part of what we are here to do is to clear out the mud and bring some light through reasoned discourse. Which brings me back to this Thanksgiving tradition that I mentioned. This time last year, Recognizing that families would be getting together for the holidays and maybe with some trepidation about sensitive topics cropping up in conversation, I sat down with a guy named Ken Stern. Ken is a friend and a two-time author, and he was, among other things, the one-time CEO of NPR. Ken and I chatted about the book he had just published called Republican Like Me which is a deliberately tongue-in-cheek title because Ken is a lifelong Democrat, and that hasn't really changed. But what Ken did as a Democrat was to go out into the country and meet and talk to Republicans to try to understand their points of view on a range of issues. And what happened was, by engaging civilly, Ken saw and learned enough to consider seriously changing his mind on a few things. It was an interesting journey for him, on which he also picked up some wisdom about conversing with people with whom he thought he could only disagree. So this Thanksgiving, look for the wisdom in this, my conversation with Ken Stern, once again. 
Hello, John. Thanks for having me on the show. And Ken, it is the occasion of the publication of your second book that brings you here. And it is a really interesting account of your experiment uh, when you set out to meet with and talk to and listen to people from the end of the political spectrum that you had always seen as, well, if not the enemy, at least the opposite side uh, from your values and beliefs. To put this much more clearly, you're a liberal who decided to go venture among conservatives. Full disclosure, I found the book so good that there's a blurb for me on the back cover. But the reason that I found it so good is that you tried your hand at what Intelligence Squared aims to do as part of its mission, and that is to recognize that most arguments have respectable people and respectable positions on all sides. And not that everybody needs to agree. It's not about finding the middle. But at least you really should know what it is that the other side is saying. Do I have that about right? That's right. That's right. Exactly right. So it, it, the book is built around my concern, which is shared by a lot, that we've, uh, um, we're becoming increasingly polarized. We're increasingly angry at the other side, often in ways that are unrelated issues. Um, it's, it's become almost tribal. Um, they are the other. They are not like us. Um, uh, um, and we're angry and uh, um, look down on the other side, whichever side you're on. And I think my, my year in this book was really built around the notion that that can't be the right way for democracy. Let me do my own personal journey to see things from the other side. Well, I want to talk about how that journey worked out. And along the way, maybe you can extract some lessons for folks that, that are, in fact, dreading Thanksgiving dinner this year in particular. Um, but, but what's the starting point? I, I just now declared that you were a liberal who ventured among conservatives. Do yes. I have that right? How liberal, how liberal is your world or was your world? So uh, the book actually starts with Hobart Street, uh, my home street in Mount Pleasant neighborhood of Washington, D.C., 93 dem 93% Democratic ward, 100% Democratic household. I've grown up as a Democrat. I have early memories of handing out leaflets for McGovern which uh, um, as a child. So it gives you, and throughout my entire career, probably um, uh, in Democratic politics um, and elsewhere, um, always have been surrounded by people who are like-minded in that regard. And comfortably so. Very comfortably. And I think not unusually so. That's the thing. There was actually a fascinating um, study that the Washington Post, a poll that the Washington Post did during the last election. They went to Virginia, an evenly divided state, and they asked Clinton supporters, do you have any um, close personal friends or family members who could vote for Trump? And they asked the same of Trump supporters. And think about it. I mean, we're talking big circles here, family members, friends, um, and over 50% of people said that they didn't know anyone who was going to vote for the other side. And that's sort of an extraordinary thing, how we've now fashioned our world so that we only talk to the same side. So what at, at some level, something must have been nagging at you about uh, about this world that you lived in. Well, so I'll tell you sort of the creation story of the book. Um, uh, and the issue has been nagging me for a long time. I mean, the 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 stories of how angry we are, the fact that we now... Um, this is actually a, a, something that's been tracked for a long time. Do you want your children to be marry someone from the other party? And that sort of the number of people who Democrats who don't want their kids to marry Republicans and vice versa has gone way up. Just uh, um, social division. But all began so Hobart Street, where I began the story, is um, a lovely street, a lot of team spirit. Uh, we have a lot of festivals, Halloween, and we have our big uh, um, big annual festival called Porch Fest. And it be, always begins with Hobart Street Pledge, which changes every year. And I always liked it until one year, a couple of years ago, it went, everyone is welcome to Hobart Street, man or woman, white or black, gay or straight, everyone but Republicans. Seriously? 
Yeah. Uh, was it tongue-in-cheek? It was tongue-in-cheek, but it wasn't tongue-in-cheek, yeah. right? Because yeah. so, it really reflected – it was a joke and got laughs, um, but I think it really reflected – the truth is we actually didn't want the other as our neighbors, and we defined the other in this world increasingly by the other party. And that was sort of the starter's pistol for me. Like, that can't be right. Um, it can't be right for, for Hobart Street. It can't be right for me. And, I, and there I began to sort of chart out what this book would be about, trying to – as Atticus Finch said in To Kill a Mockingbird, if you want to understand some someone, try to see things from his point of view. So how did you go about doing it? So uh, I spent probably a year and a half um, doing a whole variety of things that all can be, I think, put into the category of listening to others. Um, so some of that was just going down to conservative experts at AEI or Manhattan Institute or uh, um, any number of other places, um, but mostly went about going around where I could find lots of Republicans and just talking to them, spending time in their homes, their, their meals with them. Um, that could be NASCAR races. That could be evangelical churches. I went to a 15,000-person gathering of evangelical youths. I was the oldest and most Jewish person there. Um, I went pig hunting in Texas. Uh, I went to Pikeville, Kentucky, Youngstown, Ohio, and just spent days talking to people, trying to understand things from their point of view. How good were you instinctively at being able to hear the other side? So this is, um, uh, going back to Atticus Finch, uh, I tried to str- as much as I could. So the book is the, will be the judgment on how good I was at it. Really tried to think of myself as... Republican for a year. I mean, that's sort of how I went. I actually went down to the voter registration office in Washington, D.C. and changed my registration. Seriously? Yeah, I did that. I mean, I (laughs) changed my media. I read Breitbart. I spent time with Steve Bannon um, before he was famous. Uh, I watched a lot of Fox. I listened to Mark Levin. I spent six or seven trips to a small Assembly of God church in Fredericksburg, Virginia, run by my now my friend, Pastor Steve. And I really tried to think of how I would look at things if I were them, if I were, you know, if, if I had a different background, a different orientation. And really, that's the, my approach to it. A lot of our politics are inherited. I mean, we have to recognize it's not just about right or wrong. It's where we come from, who we talk to, who our parents are. And um, you have to start with that saying not that we're right, they're wrong. That's the end of the story, which is actually a radio line from a conservative talk show host. Um, uh, but that there are people of value and distinction and good ideas and dedication and community on both sides, and you really need to listen to them. So in terms of listening to somebody, let's take this to the Thanksgiving dinner table for a moment. If you want to have that kind of communication with somebody and you want to keep the peace, does that mean that you as a listener need to only listen and you have to shut up and not push back? No, that's not a conversation, right? That's a speech. Uh, So the the interesting thing I did, uh, my interesting experience was um, I was – interviewing, right? I was doing this for a book and I was always transparent about that. But I tried to have conversations, right? Which Mm -hmm. is sort of share where I'm coming from because I'm not like uh, Walter Dixon in Pikeville, Kentucky um, or or Scott Seitz in Trumbull County, Ohio. We have different backgrounds. And when they said things and I would say things and we really try to talk and find common ground. And the interesting thing was um, it may not be at your Thanksgiving dinner table, but Uh, Americans, to me, are actually surprisingly moderate people and when they actually talk about the issues. They tend to gravitate towards the the middle. Um, And one of the most interesting things was, uh, it's in the research, but it was in my own conversations, was we actually don't disagree any more than we used to um, over the last 25 years. All we've done is become angrier and angrier and more personal about the conversation. And when you take that personality out of it, if you sort of, this is not about whether you like or dislike Donald Trump, it's about 
the people and their views of the world actually come, becomes a lot easier. So you're saying that we, we actually agree on a lot more than we're aware we agree on. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, if you look at some of the most divisive issues of our time, uh, they could be anything from guns to immigration to abortion. Um, the actual data and the actual conversations um, are much closer. It doesn't mean that there aren't real. Of course, there are differences of views and different issues and cultural differences as well, but they're not nearly as um, distinct as you would think. Um, Yuval Levin, the, the conservative um, writer, the, uh, philosopher, said to me, you know, we're really playing between the 45-yard lines. And that was my experience, hmm. that we actually share more in common than we think. We're, we're in a culture dominated by the loudest and angriest. And what, what explains that? Why are we in that stage? Well, so um, so I think there, there are a number of things going on, one of which is actually demographic. Um, you, there used to be conservative Democrats. There used to be uh, liberal Republicans. You had to deal with people of different views within your own circles. And I think that meant you were much more nuanced in your thinking. And that's actually happened in geography now. We've actually started to sort ourselves physically from others based upon um, uh, uh, political parties. There, uh, Ten years ago, there were about 1,000, 1,100 landslide dis- uh, counties, counties that go one way or the other by more than 20%. Last election was 2,500, 60% of the country. We're, we're, we're actually shifting around. And once everyone you're talking to thinks like you, like on Hobart Street, becomes really easy to take uh, um, to demonize the other side. You don't know them. You don't deal with them. And it's easy to, to think badly of them because there's no personal rebuttal to it. And then, of course, media and social media plays right. into an enormous amount as well. D- did you hold demonized views of people on the other side of the spectrum? Yeah, of course I did. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't like to admit it. But again, I, I will say I will admit it and also say it's pretty typical. The Washington Post, um, apparently I still read the Washington Post a lot, <laughs> um, did a word cloud. You know, They went out and asked Republicans, give me one or two words that you think of Democrats and the same with Democrats. And then they sort of, you know, they, they do a physical representation of what they hear back. And all the world words from both sides pop up. So Democrats think of Republicans, racist, bigoted, selfish, um, sexist, uh, greedy. Those are the words that pop up. And, you know, I, I know enough an intellectual basis to say that's not going to describe everyone I meet by for sure. Um, but still sits at the back of the mind that that is a philosophy. There's something off with Republicans. That was you starting out on this journey. Me starting out knowing that can't be right, but somewhere instinctively I still had that belief. All right. The book is a journey, uh, and, and that's where the fun of it comes from. So let's let's take parts of the journey with you. So you've already alluded to some of the, some of the places you went that were um, – clearly outside your comfort zone. I think pig hunting in Texas was probably the, the most clear-cut case of it. And even in setting up pig... I'm, gonna, I'm, a, I'm a liberal Jewish Democrat from the Northeast, and I'm going to go pig hunting in Texas. It's already, in a sense, stereotyping what the other side is about by choosing that as a target. Um, what, what did you have in mind, and what happened out there? So let me actually sort of set up the pig hunting, which is I didn't sit in my house and say, I need to go find Republicans. And there is certain stereotyping in this. Let's, let's admit this up front. Um, but, you know, you want to go to a target-rich environment. Uh, and I, I read – so it started off – I read a quote by the head of Heritage Action who said, what people in the Acela Corridor miss is the – and that was his phrase, Acela Corridor – the awesomeness of middle America. I'm like, I want that. I want the awesomeness of middle America. Um, but I didn't know where to find it. So I went to see Tucker Carlson. 
also from Washington, D.C. in the Acela Corridor. And I said to him, let's Tucker, celebrate it with the Acela Corridor refers to the, the space between Washington and New York City where yeah. the, the Amtrak train, the Acela, runs several times a day. Right. Okay. Um, and, and of course, you know. And it's expensive is, and it's the fast train and it's the one that all the power brokers take. That's right. So and it's full of, look, our lives are full of stereotypes, how we understand the world. And that's a stereotype as well. But sure. be, it, be that as it may, did Tucker a, you know, a, a icon of the Acela Corridor in some ways um, and said, what should I, where do I find the awesomeness of America? And he said, go pig hunting in Texas. I'll go. Um, uh, the biggest problem being I had never shot a gun before in my life. Um, so I found a friend from Iowa, uh, a Democrat in that case, and he took me out skeet shooting and I was amazingly bad. I mean, just the idea of being able to hit those clay pigeons was impossible. But did um, you enjoy it? Not particularly. No. Not particularly. Uh, I actually found it very frustrating. Um, and that that led me to go pig hunting. I found a place to go pig hunting in Texas, um, Gonzales, Texas, and um, spent the day there shooting also badly, but having a much more enjoyable um, experience because of the people I met. The morning I spent with a three-generation three family from Georgia, Paps, the grandfather, CJ, the father, and Isaac, uh, who's all of eight, which is the same age as my son. And Isaac became my sort of hunting mentor and took me around and sort of showed me, you know, what to do and what not to do. And the afternoon I spent shooting with a group of uniformed salesmen from Houston who uh, were collectively were like a demographic bar joke. There was a Hispanic soldier. There was a <laughs> black middle class guy. And there was a Serbian immigrant. And there was me, the Jew from Washington, D.C., Go out on a pig hunt. And, you know, the <laughs> experience you have with them, the, the conversations you have really gives you a different flavor of of both guns and America. So what did you learn? Here is actually sort of a interesting codicil to this. Gonzales, Texas is about eight miles from Sutherland Springs as the crow flies. So, um, you know, people's views on gun. I mean, it's one of the interesting things that everyone takes their own lessons away. Sutherland Springs, the horror of... Uh, of people owning semi-automatic weapons to some. The others, it's the story much beloved in Texas of the individual citizenry rushing to the rescue. Mm -hmm. uh, and we actually talked about those things and you know, sort of the idea that I was told the crime in Texas, there's no mass murders in Texas, incorrectly, of course, um, um, is because everyone's armed and it's just uh, foolish for anyone to take on the armed citizenry. Um, but people had a different relationship with gun. For them, it was... Um, you know, something that for people I was talking to, something they'd grown up with, something they thought was necessary to protect them and their families in dangerous times, something that was just part of a way of life. I mean, Isaac, eight-year-old Isaac, um, you know, even then it would have been unthinkable for him to grow up without a gun. I'm sure he would have said that to me. Um, and it's just a different take on the world. But what, what you're doing is describing who they were when you found them and what their, their attitude towards guns was. But what evolution did you have in your thinking about how you're the way that you picture people who haven't owned guns. Did you uh, did you have a transformation? Yeah, I did. I mean, so I started off. Um, so one of the interesting things after this, as happens after every horrible event, and let's talk about let's admit how horrible um, these things are and the challenge of, of solving is that everyone goes out and says from one side says what we this wouldn't happen if we had sensible gun control. And, and that, that was, was you. Yeah, that was me. Of course, it was like if those bastards at the NRA would get out of the way, we could really take a chunk out of gun homicides. Um, 
And I sort of took that into these conversations, both with people, um, sort of ordinary people, and then calling up John Lott, the conservative economist, the guy who wrote More Guns, Less Crime. Um, and I thought when I called him up, I would take him on. He's debated with Intelligence Squared, by the way. Yeah. Is that, yeah. yeah. Um, I thought I would take him on and I would see you – know, I wouldn't convince him to see the arrow's way, but I would, I would expose the – the fallacies of, you know, to, at least to myself, the fallacies of his thinking. Um, and it was an education. I mean, sort of, and got me thinking and doing a lot of research about the challenge of it. And I'm still for uh, sensible gun control. Um, I can't think of anything I'm against, but I've lost the notion that that's actually going to have a transformative effect on on crime. Um, we actually see it in individual circumstances. And the biggest thing is, 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 to me, we always miss the big story. You know, Gun crimes have actually gone down by 50% in this country. It's actually the biggest uh, um, change in criminology probably in a century um, and has nothing to do with gun control because, of course, the number of guns gone, have gone up. Um, John Lott would say that those are cause and effect. I won't. But um, we've actually figured out a lot of how to get re- how to reduce gun crimes. Mm-hmm. And it's got nothing to do with gun control. We don't spend any time talking about those things. We miss it because we want to go for the easy thing. Are we pro-guns? Are we anti-guns? And that seems to miss the mark when you get down to really solving complex problems. Do you, when you turn to your Hobart Street neighbors, theoretically, and have a conversation about gun control, what is it that you're now saying to them? So I'm saying, uh, I'm starting with a couple of things, one of which is, it's not a black and white matter. It's not right versus wrong. These are complex issues. Um, that can be seen from different perspectives. Um, so that's number one. And then I say, substantively, I try to engage in terms of what we can do as a society to drive. Uh, um, everyone wants to get the crime rate down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's take that as a as a given. Um, let's have a conversation about what can be done. It's not whether you're for or against crime. That's really not the conversation out there. It's the question of what is the most effective way to do that. And what about the char- how you would characterize uh, gun owners today versus gun owners, how you would characterize them before you made that journey? Yeah, so it's so interesting. Um, I, I had sort of aha moments along the way. Um, I, and I've been to, you know, this is about how I learned of the right um, and that means I don't agree with everyone I heard, but I met sort of many admirable people. But I also met, you know, this is there's still the paranoid style in American politics, and you meet a lot of interesting people. Let's call them interesting on the way. And I've been to some Tea Party meetings, which really sort of set back my love of of the right uh, during this journey, because addiction's all to me all offensive, all wrong, all, all angry, and that's you know that's not where I think we need to be. Um, and I went to one the day before I talked to John Lott. Tea Party meeting? Tea Party meeting, yeah. What? Where was that? It was here in Northern Virginia. Uh-huh. I was telling this story to John the next day, John Lott the next day, and he said, you know, by the way, you probably know a lot of those people were carrying concealed weapons. And I sort of said, paused and said, thought to myself, that's a pretty scary notion. Um, and then he said to me, you know, um, people who carry guns, who actually are legal owners of guns, are the most law-abiding people in the country more than police officers. Um, and if you go and ask a police officer, which I did, you know, what happens when you stop a car and you see that they're a, a, a licensed carrier, um, which comes up in the police database? Um, does that make you nervous? And the answer is, no, it doesn't, because you know that those people, by and large, are going to be more, more law-abiding than others. Um, and I try to sort of hold that, even though I'm still not comfortable with guns, um, it's still not me and my culture. Um, I hold that notion in, in, in my head that uh, the people who carry guns, by and large, are law-abiding part, uh, um, people, um, more so than others, and we got to respect that. And to quote uh, President Obama's statement, which was considered so offensive, people clinging to their guns and their Bibles, did you have that some smidgen of that sense of uh, 
people clinging to their guns and there was something about wanting to own a gun that was uh, that that indicated a character flaw? Yeah, I guess uh, I, I would start with initially that I didn't really get it. I mean, why would you need a gun when there is a police officer nearby? I mean, in my life, you know, in Washington, D.C., there are people who are supposed to have guns. They generally have badges and people who aren't. And that's everyone else. Um, I didn't get that notion. It wasn't obvious to me why anyone would think differently. Do you get it now? I, I do. Yeah, of course. What uh, is it? I mean, for, for those who aren't from that side of the line, what is it? So I think there are a couple things. One is, well, I think there are a lot of, like, it's all com- it's all complex, too. Um, uh, some of it's culture. Look, Isaac, eight-year-old Isaac, um, it's part of, you know, it ha- that gun hangs over his bed. Um, it's just part of what he does. It's part of what he does with his father and his grandfather. It's the tradition. He would, um, uh, um, you know, he told me how proud the day before he was able to shoot the shit out of a pig. He was, you know, and he did that with his father and grandfather. It wasn't, you know, just a random thing. You grew up with that and it's meaningful. Um, second is, look, if you don't live in a big city, that police officer is not at hand. The bumper sticker is, I'd rather have a gun in my hand than a police officer on the phone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things that happen when, if you're in Gonzales, Texas, when the nearest police officer might be 25 miles away, very different than than me where, where I live across, you know, down the street from a substation. So this was eye-opening to you? It was. Yeah, it was a lot that I heard was eye-opening because we all live in this, I mean, it probably makes me sound naive, um, but, you know, we all live in a bubble talking to people like ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's the danger that we face. You know, to me, it's a question of, you know, is our society better off with 300 million guns out there? And I still would say, heck, if we could get rid of 300 million guns, we'd probably be a much safer society. But the 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 way between here and there is just not clear to me. And we need to sort of talk about what's effective, not what is, you know, some abstract notion of right and wrong. So another of your journeys was into the evangelical world. Yeah. Tell me about that. So you have to start again. Again, I, and I want to I want to start this with what was your perception of who evangelicals are? So, um, I, I do know some evangelicals. I, I want to say I want to start off. I'm not quite as you know uh, sheltered as some of this might suggest. Um, but you know, look, I'm a I'm agnostic Jew. Um, so you know, my knowledge of the evangelical community was very limited, and it was probably. Described most by what the movie Footloose and what I knew about Jerry Falwell, who'd been, who's been dead for a, a decade now. So I went to this evangelical um, convocation um, called Urbana. It happens every three years, and you know I, I don't couldn't even tell you what I expected, but I did not expect to find kids talking about Black Lives Matter or talking about the refugee problem, how to help people, not how to keep them out, um, and recognizing that evangelicals and other churches play a big role in refugee resettlement in the U.S. Um, I was really um, surprised, and again, I feel sort of naive saying these things now, but I, I think it's the truth, just sort of how these how these kids were wanted to dedicate their lives to helping the poor, the homeless, the people who live in the shadows, sort of, you know, the life of Jesus in some ways, the message of Jesus. That they, um, were, that they were doing it and they were sincere and they were making effort and putting in the hours. They were. And they mm-hmm. were. And, you know, I wanted to talk to them about sort of the issues that I thought define evangelicals, abortion, gay rights. And, you know, they would talk to me about it. Um, but that wasn't their issues. I mean, that was us defining them, not the other way around. And that's, I think, a wrong way to understand people and what they're about. How, how did the conversation about gay rights go? As I recall from the book, you were surprised that there was broader view than you had anticipated. Yeah, so there is. So there's actually a fair amount of data on it. So like 25% of evangelicals you know, now support gay marriage. And that's, of course, a, a minority. 
Um, uh, but it's a it's a group in transition. You know, they're I mean they're very conservative. They have a literal view of the Bible. That's one of the definitions of evangelicalism. And many of them say, you know, will say to you, like Pastor Steve and um, at the Assembly of God Church in Fredericksburg, which is, look, you know, I'm the Bible's first truth for me. And, you know, whether I personally sort of gut level um, have friends who are gay and otherwise, you know, I have to follow the dictates of my Bible first and foremost. Um, but I found just sort of a variety of views in the most surprising of places. So, um, you know, I went to Liberty University, Jerry Falwell's university. It was sort of my tour of places I thought I would hate. Um, <laughs> and, and before I went, I had a conversation with a man, a professor at, at the university, at Washington University in St. Louis, a guy named John Inazu, who's a evangelical and a law professor there, and, and a remarkable man. And he said to me, you know, I've always found liberty to be a terribly nuanced place. I thought, that's such an odd thing to say. Um, and so I asked uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., I said, you know, about the, you know, what are, what are the students' views on gays? Um, what do you think about having gay uh, students on campus? And he surprised me um, by saying, you know, he just sort of shrugged. He said, yeah, of course we have gay students. Um, you know, I mean, I think that masks a complex set of issues, but I think the, the notion of, I would not have had that conversation with Jerry Falwell Sr. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just a, you know, a decade has changed not only the country, but the evangelicals. And I think it is a more nuanced view, still a terribly conservative view, but one that is changing with the times, which I didn't give him credit for. What was the experience of, you said you you spend a lot of time watching Fox News and watching and being on the Breitbart site, places you hadn't, I'm guessing you hadn't spent a lot of time before for you uh, coming coming in there as a complete novitiate uh, and then spending months watching it consistently. What was that? What was the experience for you? So, I mean, some of it is um, quite awful, actually. Really? Um, uh, um, So I spent, um, you know, I I sat on Steve Bannon's radio show a couple times listening, talking to him, um, trying to understand the impact that Breitbart has. Um, uh, um, But the, the part that actually got me um, and, and I think so. Let's actually say the sort of the good thing, which is, you know, I think they and they, I think the sort of a, a, a media world raise issues um, that others haven't seen uh, and speak to people who feel locked out of the mainstream media. But if you spend time, as I did, on the comment page of uh, of Breitbart, you see such an ugly, um, angry, often racist, often sort of people bashing world that really you know, stood was, was was very different from the conversations I had. And, you know, I, I've tried to hold those two ideas together. Like I met hundreds of people who um, I liked and admired and could have uh, um, credible conversations with. But there's also a world out there that is angry and racist um, and, you know, potentially violent, frankly, um, if you read sort of the diction of it. And, you know, those worlds somehow coexist, um, and I found it often hard to sort of fit those things together. Yeah, I mean, you, you say you're an agnostic Jew, but you're still a Jew, and you write in the book about encountering anti-Semitism, being at gun shows and seeing Nazi memorabilia. <laughs> I remember your line about one guy had this lineup of Nazi stuff, and you said, I'm willing to listen to a lot of stuff, but that guy can kiss my ass. Yeah, so, you know, that, that's the thing, which is, you go, I mean, look, gun show is not my world. Um, um but you go there and, you know, uh, um, you try to remember that a lot of people you're seeing are people we lionize elsewhere, law enforcement, military, ex-military. That's, you know, that forms a uh, – and others, uh, f- uh, law-abiding citizens uh, form a big part of the gun show audience. And you hold that one hand and that you also notice people sort of streaming by this booth, which was that uh, – I went to the same gun show twice over the course of six months. Um, guy selling Nazi paraphernalia, you know, 
Panzer movies, um, you know, uh, Afrika Corps T-shirts, um, things that clearly have such a sort of a, uh, a deviant, from my perspective, message. And no one seems to notice. And I still don't know, quite know how to hold that together. So, I mean, you, you went out to, to places that you, you anticipated having a sort of um, luster of, of being exotic for you. <laughs> yes. What did those people make of you coming from the Northeast? Were you exotic to them? You know, um, uh, I, they never made me feel like I was a stranger. I mean, uh, um, uh, I got invited to people's homes. We ate meals together. People wanted to talk. Um, and often they wanted, because of my background, they wanted to talk about media. But they often wanted to talk you know, in places about how they felt. And this is, goes, I think, to some of the stories of Trump and the, the white working class um, who formed so much part of his base. Sort of the feeling of alienation, the feeling of abandonment by the part political parties, both of them, uh, the elites of both, um, the establishment of both coasts. Um, so I think people, by and large, not always, but by and large, wanted the chance to sort of share that views to me of how they how they felt they were perceived and abandoned. So you set out on this journey pretty much in a per- time of period that overlapped with the beginning of the Republican primaries and goes all the way through Donald Trump's election. Actually, Just about? Uh, I actually started about six months before Trump entered the, the race and then went through the election. Okay. Did, did Trump come up a lot in your conversations? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, this is uh, – I mean, by the – certainly by the second half, I mean, every conversation was about Trump. He owned the space. Um um, the the public conversation, the public mindshare, not just in the media, but just everyone wanted to talk about their take on him. And you know, <laughs> now that we, as we said at the beginning, we have Thanksgiving coming up. Yeah. How did how did what, what's your what did you learn about how to have these conversations, not just about Trump, but yeah, yes, also about Trump, uh, in ways that 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 allowed for the thing that you wanted to have, which was getting to know each other really yeah. and hearing each other. Yeah. So you know, the it was interesting to me, which is. Um, I think your question assumes quite rightly that I have a negative view of the president and uh, certainly has not been – that negative view has not been reduced over the last nine months. Um, but I actually found myself understanding – not agreeing, but understanding why people gravitated towards them. Um, the feeling of the notion that the establishment of both parties and well captured by Hillary Clinton had abandoned them. When you talk about the white working class, which is on like on a 30-year losing streak, income down, life expectancy down – opioid addiction up, the sense of the future down. Um, there, the, the thing you'd hear over and over again is, you know, I don't know about this guy Trump um, and express it in different ways, um, but he's so different. Everything else hasn't worked. We might as well give him a shot. Um, and that was expressed in lots of different ways. So a lot of people, you know, I mean, they're fanboys out there who, you know, yell and cheer for him. But a lot of the views of him was more a sense of failure of the political system for them. And, you know, when you're in Pikeville, Kentucky, and people are out of jobs and have seen no future, you, it's easier to understand that when you sit on Hobart Street. Do you do you have um, any advice for people getting through Thanksgiving if, in <laughs> fact, it comes up? Well, so actually, a number of people sort of talked about this with me. Uh, and the first thing I always say is, you know, it's Thanksgiving is going to be less of a problem for for people than they think. So there's a, a, a very good political scientist out of University of Maryland named Lily Mason, who's, who has noticed sort of the partisan divide in our sorting, which says, you know, people didn't like to used to talk about politics at, at dinners because it would start a fight. Now they don't have to worry about it because everyone th- is more likely to think alike. Um, huh. uh, and, and that's a that's a truism that you see in the polling and people's lives. Um, but um, 
but that only speaks to some, and a lot of people have different views. Um, and to me, you know, whenever I talked about personalities, Trump, Clinton, things got angry, mm-hmm. um, or at least risk getting angry. Um, when people actually sat and talked about the issues and actually sort of talked about their views and why they had the views, um, it was so much easier to find common ground um, than we talked about. It. And that's, I think, because our politics have become so tribal, you know, win or lose, us against them. Um, when you actually talk about what the things that matter, it's much easier to find it whether, than whether you're supporting the president or not. Does it help to come to the dinner table armed with facts? <laughs> well, I, thought, I, thought, I thought you were going to say, does it help to come to the dinner table armed? Um, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, uh, look, families are hard. So I'm not going to play uh, Dear Abby for families. Um, knowing people better doesn't always help. Um, but with right. strangers, you know, always people always seem to be willing to listen. You know, I didn't convert anyone. No one converted me um, on their point of view. Um, there's a lot of low-information voters, including a lot of people who don't think of them that way. I mean, how many of us are really experts on the issues? Um, but I think a willingness to note, none of us are 100% right. We really aren't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I started off with a bunch of issues that I thought I had to be right on. And I found that they were much more complex and there were thoughtful views on both sides of the issue. Does, does that knowing that leave you paralyzed in terms of knowing what you consider the best policy choices? Well, so I think it leads me to understand the complexity of some, you know, yeah. to, to, I think, disagree with simple solutions um, uh, and somewhat jaundice. I mean, sort of come back, you know, I didn't come back a Democrat, I didn't come back a Republican, I came back sort of an angry moderate. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 so you're still think, angry, huh? <laughs> I'm still angry, right? Yes, I'm angry because I think the parties are about simple solutions and there aren't simple solutions out there. But there are solutions. I mean, there are answers to problems. Um, if you're willing to sort of look past the talking points of the political party. And bottom line, what is the thing you learned how to do over the course of this experiment? So I think I I learned to live outside my tribe. Um, and, and tribe is, I think, or clan, whatever you want to call it, really important way of understanding our politics now. It's often about, you know, we live in a world of confirmation bias. We always look for information that... Um, proves that we're right uh, and the other side is wrong. And I now, del- whatever my whatever the issue is, I deliberately go out and try to find views from both sides. So it's, you know, if I'm going to read Vox, I'm also going to read National Review. If I'm going to watch MSNBC, I'm also going to watch Fox and really try to understand perspectives of both sides. And, and the members of your former tribe, <laughs> do they feel betrayed by what you're doing and saying? Well, my, ni- my now 10-year-old son, Nate, um, um, has been known to boo my television appearances about this book. Um, uh, but no, I mean, you know, I think, look, I, I think what I was doing was sort of inherently American and democratic thing. And so my tribe, as I define it very narrowly, um, you know, very supportive. Um, but I do get, and this, you know, worries me about it, which is a lot of people who haven't read the book, who read the title and the subtitle, um, Remind uh, me the subtitle. Oh, um, How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. Mm-hmm. If you love the right, you must be a white supremacist like them. Uh, you must hate gays or be a benefactor. All things I've been called by people who haven't read the book. And sort of proves your point. In a it does prove really my point. Way, yeah. But it worries me um, you know, immensely. Ken Stern is the author of Republican Like Me. Thanks so much for joining us, Ken. Thanks for having me, John. So you can find a link to Ken's book on our website, iq2us.org. And something else you're going to find there is a way to help us out 
help us get to do more of these debates and more of these podcasts, because perhaps you don't know this, but Intelligence Squared U.S. is a philanthropic enterprise, and it is funded by contributions that are always tax deductible and always, always appreciated by me, whether they are large or small. And seriously, even the small donations are a way that we know that you're part of our family, and we want you in the family. We want you in our tribe. So, Please, would you consider making a donation, maybe even right now? You'll find links to do that on our website, which once again is iq2us.org. Or you can do it by text, by texting the word DEBATE to the number 797979. That's DEBATE to 797979. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Leah Mathau is chief content officer. Amy Kraft is Director of Operations and Production. Shea O'Mara is Manager of Editorial Operations. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, the Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, the George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rain, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmill. From me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you all very much.